Um, so talk to me a little bit about your personal core values. Sounds like they mesh well with LL Beans. It's obviously been a great place for you. Yeah, I am. I've, I have felt very fortunate that I landed with a company that's very much aligned with, I think, just my belief system. Mm-hmm. I'd like to welcome our listeners to the Bolus Beat podcast. I'm Jessica Estes, guest hosting for Greg Bolus. The Bolus Company is Northern New England's largest commercial real estate services firm with offices in Portland, Maine, as well as Manchester and Portsmouth, New Hampshire. We've been selling and leasing real estate in Maine and New Hampshire since 1975. This podcast is designed to provide insight into Maine's business movers and shakers. And speaking of business leaders, I'd like to welcome Marie McCarthy to the Bolus Beat. Marie is Chief Operations Officer at L.L. Bean, where she's worked in various positions since 1993. Marie's role with L.L. Bean includes oversight of operations, including fulfillment, returns, manufacturing, customer satisfaction, corporate facilities, and real estate. Marie is a member of L.L. Bean's Investment Committee and Benefits Committee, convenes the Retail Real Estate Committee that governs store selection and construction, convenes the Corporate Real Estate Committee that oversees all corporate holdings. She's also been a sponsor of L.L. Bean's diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. In her leadership role at L.L. Bean, Marie supports over 3,500 employees and is well-versed in all the challenges that organizations face in hiring, developing, and retaining talent in today's competitive work environment. Marie currently serves on the board of directors of Camden National Bank, Maine Health, and the Olympia Snow Women's Leadership Institute. She's also shared her talents with a number of nonprofit organizations over the years. Welcome, Marie. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. That is quite a list of <laughs> responsibilities and things that you oversee at LL Bean. It's impressive. You stay busy. <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of great people around. Yeah, and then join some boards for your something to do with your free time. <laughs> yep, absolutely. I've, I've, I'm very much a big believer in giving back if you can, and those are fantastic opportunities. So sure. I feel very fortunate. Um, so you grew up in Wisconsin. I did. Yeah. Yep. Uh, similar to Maine, I guess, in that there's a big outdoorsy community that type of thing. So tell us um, about growing up there and how you eventually ended up in Maine. Yeah. So, yep, I grew up in the town of Janesville, Wisconsin, which is in the southern part of the state. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, very loving family, grew up in kind of a working class family. Mm-hmm. Um, I have three older brothers, so I'm the youngest of four. And um, I grew up in a town. A lot of people think of Wisconsin, think of farms. I didn't grow up on a farm or anything like that. But great childhood, um, involved in a lot of sports and activities along the way. And then I ended up going to the University of Wisconsin-Madison to get my undergraduate degree. Um, Great time. That's a fantastic town. If you ever spent time in Madison, it's outstanding. Uh, I got an undergrad in psychology Mm -hmm. and uh, graduated in um, kind of a tougher economic time period in the early 90s. And I had a psychology professor who said to me, your psych degree and 50 cents is going to get you a cup of coffee. So (laughs) at that point in time, I started applying for, um, I had taken some classes in the business school and human resources and liked Mm -hmm. them. And then I started taking a bunch of HR related classes as an undergrad. So not a great economy to go get a job anyway. And I wanted to kind of expand my um, education more so into HR. So I uh, applied to a bunch of graduate schools and got accepted into the University of Rhode Island and um, got an academic scholarship. So I was able to go to grad school uh, it was paid for, and then I also did research for a professor, so I got some um, income too, which is great. Nice. So, lived in Rhode Island, that brought me to the East Coast. Loved that experience, and kind of 
the sort of the rest is history. I can keep taking you through how I ended up at LLB, but <laughs> that was kind of that. So that, that kind of uh, settled you into New England for the long haul. It did. I yeah. did. You know, when you're in graduate school, I knew I wanted to stay in the East a little bit longer because when you're graduate school, you you have a lot, a lot of long hours and you're in the library mm-hmm. constantly, and you don't have a lot of disposable income to do, go enjoy things. So if I could, I knew I wanted to stay in the East longer. I applied for jobs in the East Coast. Um, and the L.L. Bean story actually got hired straight out of graduate school. I was applying for jobs, had a couple of interviews and possibilities in the East Coast, um, and then some other things that were cooking in back in Wisconsin. My parents came out for my graduation ceremony for grad school. And on the Friday before I graduated on a Sunday, I got an offer from L.L. Bean. So oh, wow. my parents were out and my car was all loaded up with stuff. And either I was following them back to the Midwest or moving to Maine. And oh, I moved goodness. to Maine. So wow. Wow. That's where it went from there. So what was it about um, the company? So that was in 1993. Yep. Um, what was it about L.L. Bean that convinced you to take the job? Yeah, well... At the time, well, one, honestly, it was graduate school and it was a job. <laughs> so I, <laughs> right. I, I, don't, I don't want to mislead. But um, the um, other thing, too, is I had heard, I knew a little bit about um, LLB and I had been a camp counselor in Maine a couple years earlier. And we did the classic thing where we went at like midnight and, you know, went to the flagship store and things. So I knew a little bit about the brand. I knew more of the preppy boom kind mm-hmm. of thing from the 80s. And I'd heard from other people that L.L. Bean was a really good employer. So that was kind of my understanding. Mm -hmm. And then really it was a few years in of working at L.L. Bean where I really realized how fortunate I was to land in the kind of company that I did. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I've said this to people over the years, like I, much of my career, I grew up in human resources and I always feel like in HR, you kind of can see the underbelly of a company, you know, how decision-making actually really happens and ethics and things like that. And I just... I realize how immensely blessed um, I have been to sort of grow up in an organization like LLB and that's so values based and just we don't we don't get every decision right, but I've never questioned the ethics or the intention behind what we were trying to do. So it ended up, you know, I I got way more out of it than I ever realized back when I was, you know, coming yeah. out of graduate school. Yeah, and LLB seems like there's a lot of people there who are sort of lifers. Yep. Like they really, people really um, do commit to that culture. And, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. great. Um, so since you have joined, L.L. Bean has changed a lot, yeah. as the rest of the world, I suppose. Um, but L.L. Bean, it feels like, stays very true to its brand. Yeah. Um, and can you tell me a little bit about like really what doesn't change? I know you talked about the core sort yeah. of values that you have there, but um, yeah. what's the... What are some of the guiding principles there? Yeah, I, you know, the to me, the thing that differentiates us as an organization, the couple of things that to me are so defining are, you know, we are privately held, we have a, we're a family-based business. Mm-hmm. And so the decision-making is so much more longer term. It's not a quarter-to-quarter sort of a game. And so the values of the organization really have not changed. And I've seen different members of the family come into different positions in leadership, and they've really stayed true to the core tenets mm-hmm. of the organization. And we live according to what's called, referred to as a stakeholder philosophy, which people hear about. A lot of times people think of B Corps. It's that same idea that mm-hmm. all of our decision-making goes through the same framework of considering how we will impact our stakeholders. So you know, there's a lot of organizations that, and for all sorts of good reason within business, are trying to just fulfill the obligations to their shareholders. And ours is more, it's really more of a balanced situation of considering our employees, our customers, natural environment, vendors, communities, and our shareholders. So you see us make decisions that, um, you know, other companies might not do. You know, my classic example of this is 
There was a time period in kind of like the 90, 1990s into the 2000s where a lot of great companies were moving their footwear production out of Maine, you know, good organizations, and they were doing what they needed to do to compete. At the same point in time, we spent like a million dollars to bring in a foot, a last making machine. We bought it from Italy and moved it into Maine to start, you know, continue to make more bean boots and footwear production here. So, you know, things evolve over time, but that was absolutely a stakeholder play of, you know, if you just went after the dollars, you might make a different choice, but we're concerned about the quality and who we're employing in the state and, you know, our customers have grown to expect something about how we're producing a boot. And so those sure. things have been kind of commitments that show, I feel like they show the stakeholder philosophy. That's great. Yeah. So if your only metric is share price, then it makes it harder to make those decisions yeah, and those yeah. investments. Yeah. And it can be complex at times, like having to weigh those. It's hard to know there are competing entities. And so it's not always the easiest model, but, mm-hmm. you know, you can see the thought that goes into it. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and so speaking of, um, L.L. Bean's role in, um, in the state, Maine Biz recently reported a study um, that found that outdoor recreation brings 5.5 million visitors to Maine annually and generates $188 million in revenue. So those are pretty big numbers yeah. for a state like Maine, yeah. especially when our population is about a fifth of that, right? <laughs> um, and so L.L. Bean is a big part of that recreation economy. I'm wondering what the company um, does to draw more attention and visitors to the region, yeah. if anything. Yeah, and this is a little... Um, a little bit out of my bailiwick mm-hmm. since I'm not core in our marketing area and some of those efforts. But um, what I would, what we've talked about over time is one, Maine is such a draw unto itself. So the mm-hmm. natural beauty of the state is the thing that's sort of pulling so many people to the state. And there's been, there was a, I forget if it was Jacques McCurran, there was a former governor who had a quote that was something like, is Maine L.L. Bean or is L.L. Bean Maine or something <laughs> like that. So yeah. we're very aware of our alignment with the reputation of the state and everything we can do to reinforce activities here. Yeah. Um, so I don't think we'd ever want to do anything to damage Maine's fantastic reputation. Um, but then just in support of that, obviously, we, um, you know, our brand is about bringing people into the outdoors. And we believe fundamentally that your life is improved by time spent outdoors. And that just seems to align quite well with just the ethos of people living in Maine. And then lots of other things we do. We have our outdoor discovery mm-hmm. program with schools where we run that and encourage, try to make it easy for people to get into the outdoors and not intimidate them from other activities. Uh, we have our um, Northern Lights displays, just encouraging people to come out at all different times of the year in our flagship store. So to come and celebrate during kind of the, the winter season. Um, we do a concert series, again, just encouraging people to get out and enjoy summer nights, things like that. And then probably a couple of the... Um, biggest things to mention, just Maine Outdoor Brands has been underway for about five years now. We were part of the original um, um, organizations that helped to bring that to life. So it's lots of different businesses and entities in the state that are trying to help encourage outdoor activity. Mm -hmm. Um, And then more recently, some of the um, press for us has been about our investment in um, our flagship store. So we refer to it as Freeport Experience. So it'll be a multi-million dollar project. We're in the process of renovating our flagship store in Freeport. Um, a lot of it is, it's, it's been a long time since we've done anything comprehensive with that facility overall, but also we're just trying to think about how to create an engaging experience that pulls people into the area and gets them involved and continue to learn about just outdoor activity and appreciate what, appreciating what the state is all about. 
I was excited to read about that. Um, I don't know if you know, I'm a native Freeporter. And so growing up and going to schools right near the campus, and I've just kind of watched it change and evolve yeah. over the years. And it's been it's been really exciting to see that for, yeah. for Freeport. So. We are excited about it. And you would know, having been at that store for numerous years, it's the... What's the analogy sometimes like New England farmhouses where different pieces get yes. put together at different times? <laughs> when you look in the inner workings of that um, physical building, it's definitely one of those sorts of examples. Yeah. So we're excited just to see a full renovation, a lot yeah. of exciting ideas happening around it okay, too. Cool. Um, so in 2022, you were given the Supply and Demand Chain Executives Woman in Supply Chain Award, which recognizes your um, efforts to positively impact the supply chain industry while sustaining a strong foundation for women at all levels of a company's network. So congratulations. Um, and tell me a little bit about what that award means to you. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was a, I very much appreciate it. It's sort of a funny, a humbling kind of experience mm-hmm. to ever be called out for something. What um, I feel really good about is I realized, and I, I went to a, a conference in Atlanta when you had different people who were involved in um, this recognition. And you just realized that there are a lot of that it's important to have representation in industries and there aren't that many women in particular in more senior leadership roles Mm -hmm. in the area of supply chain. So that I felt good about it in that way of, I realize there are so many capable women and for them to see other people and realize like, Oh, I could maybe do that in the future too. That, that was very humbling. And also I can appreciate the importance. And then the thing, what um, sort of led to the recognition is the, um, Um, submission had a lot to do with what we did in the very beginning of the pandemic as a company, which I think is also another good testament to stakeholder, is I have responsibility for our fulfillment center. And one of the things that we did early on is um, we worked with Good Shepherd Food Bank um, to, I I know the um, uh, executive director at Good Shepherd, their their, uh, president of their organization, who's great, and she was talking to me about the dilemma that they had about how to get food out to people Mm -hmm. when, you know, you're in an isolation time period. And I was like, well, we know a lot about boxing and how to get things distributed. If we can help, let's do that. And so we took our people who worked in our fulfillment center and used their skill sets, because at that time, our business had waned a little sure. bit in the very beginning and really applied it towards helping nonprofits. And then our, our um, uh, manufacturing facility started making masks to help out Maine Health and, um, you know, oh, the healthcare yeah. systems in the state. So, but the utilization of taking our existing staff and using them for something different manufacturing reports into me as well. But that was kind of the story of it as um, stakeholder, which I feel very much just, uh, I'm just, I'm benefiting from a really good system around me that enabled sure. us to do that. Yeah. So. No, that's great because it keeps your people employed and yeah. with you <laughs> yeah. for that, for that period of time. Yep. I will always be forever proud of that. Cause that was a, um, you know, you can think about, you know what it's like to be inside an organization, influence decision-making and sure. things. And we are, at that time, like uh, lots of people, we were worried about economic distress and, boy, what, what, what do we even have for tomorrow? And the conversations with both our CEO and our chairman about doing this and having some of our people basically kind of work for free to be able to help out some of these nonprofit needs, they were like two-second conversations. It wasn't, I wasn't putting together decks and having to, you know, advocate for it for weeks on end. They were very immediate, like, yes, we should do that. Oh, that's so great. I'm fantastic. That's really cool. Um, and in L.L. Bean, you've also been a sponsor of the um, diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. Um, and based on the work you've done in this area, what do you, um, or where do you think companies of all sizes can focus to make an impact in that area? Yeah, um, 
We, so it's, you know, it's our journey and I feel like this is constantly humbling. Like mm-hmm. anytime you think you kind of know what you're talking about, I feel like in the space of DEI, you probably have to start over because there's probably something else that you're not seeing and observing. Mm-hmm. So it's constantly a journey. Um, but we have worked with a consulting firm who's um, talked to us a lot about the concept of just marketplace and then workforce and workplace. So the fundamental idea, how I simplify it in my mind is why would you ever want to limit your pool? So why would you ever want to limit your customer base Mm -hmm. if there are people out there that want to be your consumer? Why would you ever limit your hiring pool if there are people with talent and capabilities? Why wouldn't you, you know, want them to be a part of your organization or be part of the consideration set of somebody you'd want to have work for you? So I'd say we, we're putting attention on that, how we think about our marketing messaging, how we think about our products. You know, are we, you know, sometimes the phrases, when, when somebody came up with this product, were they thinking of me? And so are we finding ways to know who else are consumers out there that we don't know out there in the world that could be LLB and customers? So thinking about that, thinking about our hiring practices, um, both where we're attracting candidates from, who we're getting to know, how we're developing people in the organization, and who are there people that we overlook because we know we do. Um, and then lastly, I, I, so I think that, and then just bias. I, um, we, on one of the boards I'm on, we had a, um, a DEI consultant come in a few months ago, and she said her line was, you know, bias is just a habit. And habits are really hard to break. And so catching yourself with these assumptions that we make that we don't realize the doors were closing. So that's such a, uh, it's a never ending thing to keep yeah. catching yourself around bias. Yeah. So. so you're continuously trying to Train. learn more, know, know better, do better. Right? That's right. Yeah. Bring other voices in that maybe wouldn't have been part of the conversation. We yeah. started running um we call them EBRGs, Employee Business Resource Groups, with different groups. And we have, um, I have responsibility, I'm the leader of our group for Pride, but just having different people come together to comment about maybe, you know, how we think about our marketing efforts or why we're celebrating mm-hmm. certain holidays. And you already, it influences how we think about things. Like our mm-hmm. veterans group influenced how we thought about our Veterans Day promotions and things like that. Sure, so, sure. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. Um, and then... One thing that I've noticed with interest is the renovations you've been doing on yep. your... So we, we talked a little bit about the flagship store renovations, but just yep. down the street from that, a little bit south of that, um, on Route 1 is your uh, corporate office. Yeah, our I new headquarter uh, building. Yeah, your headquarter building. Yep. Well, new headquarter building. I mean, I think maybe there's some existing building, right? There it's been is. there for a while, yeah. but it looks like almost <laughs> like a brand new building, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit about how the pandemic impacted that project and, um, and, and kind of what the drivers were for that. Yeah, yeah. This will be a fun, um, just, you know, career reflection for forever about this project. So I've, I've been a part of this from the beginning. I have mm-hmm. responsibility for facilities. So it was our group that um, you know, re, reconfigured and rebuilt the building. The project in reality now, I think, goes back eight years when we first started having conversation about um, updating our existing facility. The, the prior building was, you know, the most current stuff was maybe 40 plus years old. All the HVAC systems, everything were just mm-hmm. old and dated. We knew we needed to renovate. The, a couple of the examples were, um, you know, we do engagement surveys. We call it the bean pole. And um, there were comments in the bean poll about just how old the prior facility was. <laughs> and, um, and then one of the classic examples was we didn't have space to bring new people in. So one of the um, kind of bellwethers was we had, we had some interns that we'd hired one year and we couldn't find space for 
for them. <laughs> so we didn't have enough room and it was old. And so, but the challenge was, you know, to have the funds to support this and so on. And so um, starting back eight years ago, we started having conversations and board updates about making this investment. And, you know, ultimately, you know, got support, knew we needed to make it, um, engaged with one architectural firm who went through design options with us, started to sketch out what that looked like. Um, and, you know, retail's had its different time periods. And if you go back a few years ago, there were some tougher economic times. So trying to figure out the right moment where we felt like we had the funds to do it. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, we got approval, um, engaged with a, a, a local architectural firm, local construction firm. Um, great, got all our partners all lined up. Um, and we're kind of beginning in on the project, had approval. And then um, we're literally had started to do some demo. And then COVID happens in the beginning of 2020. And we, um, at that point in time, funny, just like as with board meetings as mm-hmm. markers, the March board meeting of 2020, the debate was, do we just stop that project altogether? Because we knew it was over $100 million. Mm. Do we just stop the projects? That's March 2020. Business is down and then starts to pick up a bit. So by like the May board meeting, it was, well, continue with it, but just slow it down. Let's see how things go. Mm-hmm. But then also some of the conversation was, we might want to um, pick up the pace on this. So by the September board meeting, business is better. And we also saw what was happening with COVID and employees weren't coming to work. So we're like, could we speed this thing up and get it done faster than we originally expected? So we actually got into that building almost two years ahead of the original oh, wow. schedule that we had and, you know, very much pulled for the for the spending. So it ended up being, in essence, for us, a $120 million effort um, of, uh, you know, just a phenomenal, beautiful building. It's a great space. You know, um, we're, we're thrilled with it. And it's just, it's been such a crazy journey on, you know, speed up, slow down, and you know enough around construction sure. like those. It's not easy to turn ships like that. Yeah, so it's tough. been quite a journey. Well, and I, so part of the, my guess is, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, um, part of the reason that you were able to do it faster was because you didn't have to accommodate the employees anywhere in the building for any period of time. That was exactly right. It was our safety play because we'd already had, you know, you you know, you you know what it is. Anytime you're involved in construction around any kind of human traffic, it just adds to the complexity. So we were able to go faster. And then also just, we had all of our subcontractors lined up. Um, You know, we were working with our construction team and they were able to move faster. And um, even in terms of the way the labor market played out, it's probably good that we went as aggressively as we we did Mm -hmm. earlier, because I'm not sure exactly what that would look like now, you know. And if you had waited another two years, it might have been 40% more expensive. That's exactly (laughs) right. Exactly right. And I will forever credit, we have a director on our construction team who... The VP and myself, earlier, before the pandemic, around that time period, we were wondering, I remember saying, like, well, we're concerned that the economy might turn, maybe construction costs might go down. And, you know, he was always very consistent with just go, go, go with it. And he was absolutely right. Thankfully, we did not slow down. Yeah, that's great. Um, And so I heard a story about how you personally worked during the pandemic, because because of the nature of your operations, there had yeah. to be some days, you know, you had to go to work. Yeah. Um, so tell yeah. me tell me about that. It was funny. So in the beginning, so yes, I have responsibility for a big operationary, operational areas. And most all of those areas or a lot of them work on site. Mm-hmm. So my office previously in my core office now, again, they are in our headquarter building, which is different than where our fulfillment center is or our manufacturing facility and things like that. And so, um, you know, it was that Friday 
was it March 13th? Mm-hmm. I can't remember. I think it was that to date. Friday the 13th. <laughs> there we go. We tested. We asked our office personnel to stay home and we said, we're going to see what this looks like and then we'll let you know. And then I think it was like that Saturday, every school closed. And then by Monday, it was like, we're just, we're going to be staying home. Mm-hmm. So for a few days in that next week or so, I worked from home because that's what we were directing people to do. But then um, I wanted to go work on our fulfillment center because we had hundreds of people working in the building. We knew that if our, as a direct marketing business, if our fulfillment center could operate, we actually felt like we may have a a pretty good business opportunity here if people don't go to stores. And um, so I didn't want to ask people who work for me, our pickers and packers and everybody that are in fulfillment center, I wouldn't want them to ask them to do something I wouldn't do. Mm -hmm. And so I started just move my office over and kind of took an empty conference room and started working there. And I've had an office there ever since. It's been fantastic. I love having that space there and being there. And, you know, it's so weird in the beginning where, um, you forget about it where I was, remember people being afraid to be on the roads. Like you didn't know if you're going to get pulled over the, for the, by the police, right. were you considered an essential job? And we had our chief compliance officer write letters that I had one in my glove compartment for a couple of years that had like, I'm a essential worker and that's why I'm on the roads and so on. Or you'd close your door and kind of bump your cheek and not sure if like, did I just give myself COVID? Right. You didn't remember we were, we were wiping down <laughs> our groceries and all that. So um, in the beginning, it had that feeling. I'm really glad that I was there with other people to know what that felt like, to sure. experience it. So sure. it was a, really a fantastic, actually, gift reflectively to be able to do that. Yeah. So. And so now you have a permanent home. I do. I have, I have yeah. a, offices in a couple different places. But yeah, yeah like, I try to work at least a day or two a week in um, fulfillment. I'd That's love great. to do it more, but we're now having more and more built meetings on site in our headquarter sure. building, so I'm usually at those physically. Yeah. But yeah. it's probably really good for that fulfillment team, though, to have you on site. And yeah, I think it's it both informed me. Like I was more sensitive to issues that were surfacing, and then mm-hmm. yeah, then you're visible, and they see that you're around, and people, you know, have th- mentioned things to you. I just had somebody talking to me today about I was there this morning who mentioned something about um, a resource they need, which is just helpful to know about that. Sure, you know, just to be more plugged in. Yeah. So. So um, speaking of the corporate office that you that you have there in Freeport, how many employees work in that office? In the corporate office, it would be probably be around 800 or so. And then one of the things we're able to do with that headquarter building is bring office personnel for a bunch of different buildings into one. And Mm -hmm. we've been leasing some and selling some and so on. So we could kind of consolidate even in advance of obviously a lot of the things that are going on now in the world of real estate. Uh, But that's the idea. And then we really only... um, it's it's been kind of a, a staggered process across 2022 where we've been able to open the building up a little bit and a little bit more between like November and right around this time around February. That's when we're now more fully open and mm-hmm. everybody has an actual office with their name on it and spaces there. We still don't have all of our site work done yet, so we don't have a full-on parking lot. There's if you drive by, there's still crews out there putting a lot of stuff in place. Mm-hmm. So um, we're seeing more and more people. You know, as the weeks go by, we're not fully populated yet and um, Steve Smith our CEO has used this line um, for several months which I think is a very smart one which is um, we're thinking of the new headquarter as a magnet not a mandate so there are so many fantastic things in that building it's got a phenomenal fitness center the um, cafeteria is outstanding you know we're doing treating it as an effort like we have a um, events team that's running different events mm-hmm. like just on for valentine's day a few weeks ago they had bouquets of flowers you can come and get and you know they're just doing different events and activities to encourage people to come to the building and you know just that's because lots of people have been working from home and it's just so different to change your patterns and behavior sure. so we're just trying to like work with 
people and see their own rhythms. And, and we've seen some of the advantages of having a hybrid situation too. Like there, there've been several meetings. Um, I've worked more on site than not, but a lot of times it's been great. Where like, maybe I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm a little, I have a little bit of a sore throat from the weekend. I don't know what this is. So I'm going to take my calls from home today because mm-hmm. I don't need to be around people if I might actually be sicker than I realize and so on, or, you know, having to get to a kid's event or something like that. That's, it's been great to be flexible that way too. That's great. So you are encouraging employees to come back to the office, but not mandating it. That's exactly point. right. Yeah. Yep. And yep. we believe in hybrid too. I think we feel like we've learned mm-hmm. a lot from it and we know all work is not created the same. So like even before the pandemic, a lot of our folks who work in, you know, um, information services, a lot of people worked more remotely anyway. And, mm-hmm. and in fact, so the contact centers report through me too. And at one point in time, we had physical contact centers or call centers in, you know, Portland and Lewiston and Bangor and Waterville. And over time, we now don't really have a full-on physical contact center. Our Northport contact center in Portland is on the market right now. Mm-hmm. We um, moved people out of out of um, Northport at the beginning of the pandemic time period. And we now have a small space in Freeport in our, um, what's called the LL building, where some people are. But um, our contact centers are not, at this point in time, it's working remotely. They always we always had a lot of home agents before. Um, we had something like 30 to 30, over 30% of our um, folks in the contact centers worked as home agents before, and they had some of the highest engagement scores. Their customer satisfaction scores are really high. Mm-hmm. It worked. So, you know, like by and large, people want it. And when we've done surveying with the contact centers, it's something like 85% or more want to continue to work from home. And if we can meet our customer needs, and it's yeah, great. No, it's that, a good situation that works. It's not the same for everybody's job, but it's great for those. Yeah, yeah. Saves on those real estate costs, too, yeah, for absolutely. sure. Absolutely. Um, so I, I have kind of a two-part question here. Um, so during the pandemic, every company has dealt with supply chain issues, no matter what what the situation is. Um, and then also you've had surging demand for some of your products. Yep. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you've dealt with the supply chain issues yep. and also um, some of the products that over time um, – have seen a surge in demand like your bean boots. And then recently there was the boat and tote, which, um, what was the name that you had? It's for called it? the ironic boat the and tote. The ironic boat and tote. Yeah. So yeah. tell me a little bit about how you all balance that demand and the ability to create enough supply to meet customer demand. Yeah. Um, one on the supply chain, I, um, a huge kudos to our chief supply chain officer and our supply chain team. They did a phenomenal job of just pivoting all the way throughout the pandemic. And in the beginning, um, we also had implemented um, some new systems um, in advance of the pandemic that really aided us greatly on how we inventory plan and our ability to shift um, inventory around. But in the spring of 2020, you know, we're concerned about health of the business and we dropped around $80 million worth of inventory that had already been planned through vendors. Um, but then as business started to pick up, and I'll come back to product in a minute, but as business started to pick up across the summertime, I think we bought back something like $70 million worth of inventory. So they, But it was different stuff. So they were having to like flex on just an ongoing basis to maybe stop the production of one thing and then build up something else. And then they pivoted phenomenally well with all the things that happened around um, – shipping and containers that were stuck in other parts of the world. We were having to spend quite a bit and prioritize dollars towards getting things in. Um, It's one of those places, though, too, where we have a stakeholder philosophy and we try to treat our vendors well. And they told us 
in that process. And then now as they look back that, you know, we treated them well. There were other uh, companies that just dropped them cold. We were working with our vendors to figure out how to transition because obviously they're trying to stay in business as they're going through a distressed time period. But we've always tried to tried to treat our vendors with respect. And it, I think they saw it and that, that um, you know, bodes well for us when times are tight. Um, They also, we work really tightly together as an executive team. So we have a daily, we started it during COVID and have continued with it since. In the beginning of COVID, we had two response team meetings today, every morning at eight. And then we'd have one at, I think it was at 4.30 or five at the end of the day. We eventually dropped the afternoon meeting, but every morning at eight, we have a half an hour, we go around with every exec team member and they do an update about what's happening in their world. And that was wildly important and helpful in the beginning of the pandemic and really is still great to this day. So if things were happening, so so if you think of the supply chain, we had things happen where, you know, vendors... um, were shut down because, you know, whatever, their COVID mandates in different parts of the world might have looked like you can't leave your house. Mm -hmm. So those vendors aren't making those slippers this week or for several weeks on end, but then they get made and then all sorts of stuff ships in. And we're in a fulfillment center where usually we've received all of our items kind of by the September, October time period, we're loaded to the gills in our warehouse, and then we sell it all down as the big holiday time period comes. Mm -hmm. Well, what happened last year is there'd been such a delay in getting things made, and then all of a sudden all the product came really late, so we were very busy receiving a lot of inventory at the same point in time that we were trying to ship it out, which kind of taxes our staff, but we knew it. Like, left hand talking to the right hand, we could see what was coming, we knew that, we also had had several, just hundreds of thousands of back orders. So customers were willing to wait for something Mm -hmm. to arrive later. So that fortunately the um, customer was working with us too, but it just caused us to keep pivoting over and over. So the supply chain team did a fantastic job and they communicated well across. And we all just tried to work together to figure out how to just sort of solve and pivot. The product story is such a fascinating one. I I remember in particular in the first year of COVID, it was sort of like you could see the U.S. consumer patterns just by watching what was selling. So, Mm -hmm. you know, March, business is tough. Everybody's scared. You know, nothing sells. You know, we're closing all all of our our fleet of 50 plus retail stores closes. Um, And then, you know, like, oh, my goodness, are we going to sell much of anything? And we're boxing food and making masks. And then lo and behold, you know, you kind of get into April, May time period and wicked good slippers started selling like crazy. (laughs) So you could picture professional people working from home, you know, then it's um, sweatpants are selling and soft, cozy things and pajama bottoms and pajamas. And so you could see it was the cozy working from home time period. Then the the boom in outdoor interests that summer. So bikes started selling like crazy, kayaks, canoes, all of that, uh, stand up paddle boards. Then you get into the wintertime period and the outdoor craze continues. And I remember it was something like we had snowshoes and I think we were debating about a promotion or something they were going to do at the retail stores where snowshoes were going to have some kind of markdown on them, 10% off or something like that. But snowshoes started flying off the shelf and we were selling through them in like September. You could tell people knew they were going to go, so they wanted to get them early. So we pulled all of our, we went back to our normal pricing, like why are we discounting? Like people really very much (laughs) want these. So 
just it's so funny you can see that's what consumers were doing and where they were investing in things and then the gifting has been really phenomenal like you know just people having a chance in particular in 2022 we thought it would be a pretty good season as like some of the first like a first year of people really getting a chance to get back together with family and mm-hmm. you know caring about one another and so on and then yeah the other trends uh, with our bean boots, we've often chuckled that they almost kind of run like an economic cycle. It's like every seven or eight years or so, they just spike. And, you know, kids want them on college campuses. And a few years ago, we were selling nearly a million bean boots. And then now these last couple of years, we've been in the, you know, a couple hundred thousand kind of category. So they hit these surges and they taper. We make the bean boot in Maine and mm-hmm. in, in our manufacturing facility in Brunswick. And then um, uh, boat and totes we make as well. We make them at a manufacturing facility that's in Lewiston. And um, yeah, they boat and totes have had time periods where they'll soften a bit and maybe don't sell quite as much, or they might sell really well in Japan or other parts of the world. But yeah, boat and tote sales had been you know fine, and then this kind of fluky, ironic boat and tote thing happened, where this um, social influencer and I'm forgetting her name, she. Um, you know, took a tote and had started putting, you know, different kinds of funny monogrammings on the side of it. She had all sorts of great things to say about the quality of the LLB and boat and tote, which I would stand behind. Right. I feel like yeah. we have a high, a first rate, high quality tote. Um, she came, we had her at LLB and I had a chance to meet her. She was in our fulfillment center, a lovely person. She and a friend of hers were here. And um, so her, her post about us went viral on TikTok and everybody got to talking about it. And suddenly that just became a trend and, and our boat and tote sales lifted and they've continued to be quite strong, you know, and they, they'll hit, you know, they hit their spikes and things like that, but you just never know what's going to happen. But fun, like anytime we can go viral, something will happen to happen, you know, nine times out of 10, that's a very favorable thing for us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I see the boat and totes around with some kind of funny uh, labels on them. Yeah. it's, It's funny. If you're in a little close too, we have different people in frontline roles for us that have to, sometimes people are monogramming things on them that they shouldn't like brand names of companies and things. And those are violations or if they are, into the swears and stuff. Right, we sometimes right. have to contact customers and say, we can't do that or we won't do that. Right. So like it's there's a whole stack of exceptions, boat and totes right. that get held to the side and we see if we're gonna make them or not. But really well, sweet. If it's a fun curse to see word, them. you can get it on your main license exactly. plate, but not on your boat. Can and you tote. put a can you put a curse word <laughs> oh, on your yeah. main license yeah, plate? I yeah, guess it's a thing. <laughs> Um, so talk to me a little bit about your personal core values. Sounds like they mesh well with LL Beans. It's obviously been a great place for you for a number of years, but, um, what are the personal core values you strive to maintain? Yeah, I am. I I have felt very fortunate that I landed with a company that's very much aligned with, I think, just my belief system. Mm -hmm. Um, just, uh, and you know, you're, you're in a similar kind of role when you're leading people. I just, I've, you know, you want to be able to be true to yourself. Mm -hmm. And, um, I feel like I've been, it's important to me to, for me to be authentic. Do I feel like I can show up as who I am? Who I am? Can I look in the mirror and feel good about who I am and the kind of leader that I've been and the things that I'm saying and those sorts of things? So that's I feel like I've been able to maintain that at LLB, and I know I have a lot of friends from school and uh, people who don't always feel like they can mm-hmm. say that about their employer. So I have felt very fortunate that way. Um, and uh, in particular, as a, um, you know, to be genuine and. Do you need to be true to your word? I've, I've you know, I, I don't think your story is too much different. I started working when I was 13. Like, I've had a fairly heavy work ethic mm-hmm. over time, and I want to try and serve well. And um, I do very much feel like um, I'm really grateful for the opportunities I've been given, and I am a big believer in um, just serve, like give back. If you have the benefit of, um, you know, leading a lot of people or participating in organizations or helping to shape policies or decision-making, you know, just 
you know, recognize that's a privilege and it's an important responsibility and um, you're being gifted that opportunity and just try and treat it well and serve it well. Um, And then the beautiful thing with LL Bean, just, you know, the values-based aspect of the business is what's always been, um, you know, we had a former corporate purpose statement that started with the line um, to add value to the lives of people. And I just have, that's always just resonated for me as a leader and a person and a parent and a, all the things that we are in our lives. Um, and that, that it's through life spent, you know, time spent in the outdoors. I do think it enhances my life. And um, I've loved that I've been able to expose my kids to those sorts of activities. You know, they've gotten to do a lot of things. Some of they would have done otherwise anyway, but, you know, they wouldn't have been cross-country skiing when they were, you know, in third and fourth grade. And, you know, they love to fish and swim and all the things I like to do. And we've done a bunch of hikes and activities. So they, you know... We'll see what choices they make in their lives, but I wouldn't be surprised. I think they enjoy a lot of those same activities the same way I do. Because it's not for for me, it's not so much about the, you know, the conquering of the outdoor activity. It's more just being together and with friends and family and goofing around and telling dumb jokes and you know maybe catching a fish every now and again or getting a little exercise. But that to me is just it's so life enhancing. That's life. Very fortunate. Yeah. 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 Great. Well, thank you very much, uh, Marie, for being a guest today on our podcast. Um, it's great that you took the time to chat with us. And I find you personally to be a very inspirational person and leader and very humble and uh, look up to you. So appreciate you taking some time to sit down with us. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. I, I look up to you as well. I really appreciated knowing you over time. So. Mutual admiration. Yeah. <laughs> you can learn more about Marie and L.L. Bean at the company's website, llbean.com. And they are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at L.L. Bean. If you'd like to learn more about the Bolus Company, you can visit us at bolus.com. You can also find the Bolus Company on Facebook at, and LinkedIn at the Bolus Co. on Instagram and Twitter. <laughs>